You're listening to Young Honest Mother, the podcast. Here, we'll chat about all things marriage, motherhood, and modern home economics in all honesty. I'm your host, Maurice Young. I'm so excited to welcome Young Honest Mother's very first sponsor, Dram. I stumbled across Dram's sparkling waters for the first time when I was visiting Colorado. I was immediately captivated by the packaging, which is artistically simple, and each flavor is refreshingly bubbly with absolutely no preservatives, artificial colors, or so-called natural flavors, which is a catch-all term that can often contain synthetic chemical flavorings. So shop Dram sparkling waters at dramapothecary.com, and for a limited time, use code HONEST in all caps for 20% off your first order, or just click the link in the show notes. And now, onto the show. All right. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on Young Honest Mother, the podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yay. Okay. So let's start with this. Who is Sarah? Okay. Interesting. I've I've never had that question formatted in quite that way. Um, Right now, um, I am a writer, a full-time writer living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and also a mother of a six-year-old daughter named Olena. Um, And I just finished my second book, which is called Ordinary Insanity, Fear and the Silent Crisis of Motherhood in America. And that was out from Pantheon on April 7th, right in the middle of all this madness. Um, And it's about, uh, you know, pretty much exactly what the title says about this hidden epidemic of anxiety in American motherhood. So that's what I spent the past several years working on. Wow. Okay. So I'm always fascinated by authors, by writers in general, but I'm curious, can you share a little bit more about what compelled you to even write a book on this subject? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, it's funny, like I had spent most of my earlier career after I finished my MFA um, writing about immigration because my husband is from Mexico and we lived um, for several years in Mexico. And so I was really passionate about that subject. And then I got mm-hmm. pregnant with my daughter and I, and my first book ended up being an essay collection about early motherhood. Um, and then you know, actually, as I was, you know, as my daughter was approaching about a year, um, I was having really severe anxiety. I mean, and this had started in pregnancy and then it sort of built up and built up and built up and got more extreme over time. And so um, I started to wonder like, you know, what is this and where is this coming from? And like, I felt really confused. Like I, I later realized that many women do about the fact that like I was on the one hand really happy being a mother mm-hmm. and it had been this major identity shift for me, which was what the first book was about. So when you asked like, who is Sarah? You know, 10 years ago, I would have said like this crazy traveler person who had never lived in the US and was always overseas and was a big adventurer. And then if you asked me five years ago, uh, it would have been a total shift, right? Like living this very yeah. quiet life on a farm in Ohio. Um, so I, I, I underwent this pretty dramatic identity shift and that was really powerful and beautiful in a lot of ways, but there was this constant um, undercurrent of fear. And so the second book really grew out of me wondering where that came from, why it was so pervasive, and uh, and then starting to talk to other women and realizing that this was everywhere, right? So mm-hmm. we're talking about like a, a hyper conservative cousin of mine in the suburbs of Cincinnati, right, where we have almost nothing in common, and she has, was experiencing this extreme anxiety. And then my best friend, who's you know very 
a liberal sort of hippie living on a farm in Western Massachusetts had also experienced this, right? So I was just, I was just mentioning this to more and more people. And I was like, this is everywhere. And it's just kind of moldering under the surface and no one is talking about it. And so where is it coming from and why is it so pervasive? So that's where the impetus to write the book came from was to sort of look at this from all different kinds of angles, from the history of motherhood in the U.S., um, to the significance of race, um, to the ma- changes in the maternal brain, and all these different contributing factors, um, and and also you know somewhat selfishly to sort of understand how I had come to be so sick in a way with this fear. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, and the listeners will know that I'm all about talking about the things that tend to be left unsaid. So I was immediately drawn by your book and the things that you're writing about anxiety and motherhood and identity shifts. And so when you started to realize that you weren't the only one experiencing motherhood as such a, you know, like a cataclysmic change to our psyche, and then, you know, that kind of ripples out and can sometimes turn into um, anxiety, which you experienced what was it like to connect with people who seemingly on the surface seemed like they had it all together, um, but then come to find out they were they were going through something similar? Yeah. I mean, that was by far the most powerful aspect of writing the book. And I didn't really anticipate that when I went into it. Um, hmm. But what I found in my own experience, but also in the experiences of the women in the book. So there are seven women in the book, uh, five white women and two black women. Who I spoke mm-hmm. with extensively. Um, so, you know, interviewed them over and over and over again. And what came up in all of their stories was that more than any sort of medical intervention, so many of them had um, had therapy and gone on medication and that had been helpful, but more than any of that was sharing their stories with other women. So many were part mm-hmm. of support groups or, or had found online communities. Um, and so I remember this um, this moment that was super powerful for me when I met the first woman, the woman who would, whose story um, I sort of documented first, who was sort of my opening into this world. And mm-hmm. I was so nervous because I was meeting her at this coffee shop um, in this sort of like hip neighborhood in Pittsburgh. And I, I don't know what I was expecting, you know, but in, in walked this woman and she had a her second baby on her chest and she just looked really hip and cool and together. And I'm like, imagined how I would, you know, like to be seen, right. Is the same. And I was like, oh my gosh. And she's suffering from this um, really extreme OCD or she had, she had just sort of emerged from it. And so I had this um, moment where I sort of realized like, I don't know what I was expecting, you know, but this person looks exactly like me. And here I am mm-hmm. thinking that somehow like I have it all together and I'm fine and I'm normal and clinging to that. And so talking to her and hearing her be so open about her experience and about things that I still felt so ashamed about really um, like allowed me to get a little bit of distance between myself and the anxiety. So I think up to that point, I had been like, it's fine. I've got it all under control. I'm just super educated and really well-researched and like I can handle it and like nothing wrong here. And when she started saying things to me like, oh, well, I took all the knives in my house and I locked them in a box in the basement, right? And I was like, wow, that sounds crazy. And then I was like, oh my God, I do 15 things like that that also sound crazy, you know? So, and I was able to like talk about that more 
and be able to see that, oh, okay, I've really gotten myself into this well here that I need to get out of. Um, so that was a super powerful moment for me. And over time, as I talked to more and more women, I got much more comfortable, um, not only with this sort of terminology around anxiety and OCD in, in the postpartum and, and um, perinatal period, but also just about my own experiences, you know, and stop mm-hmm. sort of being so ashamed of them. Yeah. So I'm curious too, would you be willing to share what your postpartum experience was like so that listeners who may be going through something similar might recognize, you know, parts of your story and theirs? Yeah, definitely. So I think one really important thing to point out, and and I found this in the research in Ordinary Insanity, is that um, most of the time this anxiety um, starts you know, in pregnancy. And so we Mm -hmm. still like the language that we have culturally is just so limited to discuss these things. So we still tend to just say, Oh, like you either have postpartum depression or you don't. And we have this idea that like it either happens a few weeks after you give birth or it doesn't, but really for most women, it starts in pregnancy. Um, and that, that was my experience. And so what, I mean, it started in ways, and, and this is what I think makes it so tricky in ways that are really hard to distinguish from what we would call quote unquote good mothering, right? So mm-hmm. I was Googling a ton of the time, like, oh, you know, is is mouse poop dangerous for my baby? I was living in in uh, you know on a farm in rural Ohio, or um, oh, what about fracking chemicals in the air? And um, do fracking chemicals travel this certain amount of distance? Or what about the preservatives in granola bars? You know, anything. I was really focused on um, chemicals. And so, you know, so I think for some moms, they might listen to that and say, wow, that that sounds crazy. But then you might get another mom who's um, really worried about their child, like breaking an arm or a leg, right? Who won't let their child ever climb the stairs or something. I mean, I've heard cases like that. So I think it's easy to think, oh, wow, you know, of another person's crazy, like, woof, she's really, you know, sort of gone up the deep end. And then, you know, go back to one's own life and not see all this, like the sort of particular obsessions and and crazy that um, you have going on there. So, I mean, one of the mothers, for example, that I talked to for the book was um, really fixated on hoods, right? She would never put her child in anything that had a hood on it because she'd read something about kids accidentally being strangled by a hood, right? So, um, So I think, you know, these are examples of like, sort of taking what we already, we already have this sort of very extreme model of risk aversion and pregnancy in the US. And then I think mm-hmm. it's very easy for mothers to sort of like take that to the nth degree and just get lost there. Right. And so that's what happened to me. So for a long time, I mean, even a long time after my daughter was born, I thought, well, I'm, I'm just hypervigilant and I'm just, um, I'm, you know, doing so much research and I'm really educated. And I, it took, you know, almost a year or more after she was born for me to realize, no, this is, this is not normal. Or if it is, it shouldn't be normal. And it's consuming my whole life and it's limiting my ability to like live a full life and be a full person for my daughter. Thank you for sharing that. I, I'm yeah. curious too. So as you started to realize that you said, you didn't think that this was normal, but if it was, it shouldn't be. Was there anything that triggered that awareness in you? Like, how did you, how did you start to emerge from that? Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting question. I think there were definitely a few particular moments that I highlight in the book where it became clear to me, like this has crossed a line into something else. 
right? Um, like we went to visit friends of ours in, in Berkeley in California, right? And I, um, I remember thinking like, oh, phew, we're, we're going to stay in this nice house in Berkeley, like we'll finally be safe, right? Like somehow Berkeley being like hippie <laughs> sort of paradise, like everything there was going to be crunchy and organic and how I like it. Even though I had been living in like rural Ohio on a farm with almost nothing, you know, ostensibly threatening me for months. But um, so we went out to visit these friends and I was obsessed with um, the thought that there might be lead somewhere in their house. And I went and bought these like lead test strips from Home Depot. I mean, and this is a, a nice, um, you know, relatively modern house in Berkeley that's all freshly painted. It wasn't like there was like peeling paint everywhere or anything. And I just started testing all these surfaces and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And um, for some reason, that moment was one of the moments where I said, Oh my God, like I can't, I can't live my life. You know, I can't even enjoy being here in this beautiful place with my baby. And I have this wonderful baby and husband and friends, and I can't even see it really, you know? Um, and so that, that was sort of a watershed moment. Of course, it took me, you know, almost a year after that to get help because I think, you know, to go back to the, if this is normal, it shouldn't be. I think what's so devastating about this is there are so many forces, and I, and I highlight these in the book, that come together to sort of reinforce an anxiety that is actually pathological, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if a woman is suffering from depression, it's fairly easy to flag that as really problematic, right? But there are all sorts of ways in which our culture endorses anxiety among mothers and reinforces that. And so it becomes really easy to fall into this pattern and say, well, okay, you know, I'm I'm happy most of the time. I'm just I'm just hypervigilant, right? Um, and and there are real costs for women, and especially women of color, who push back against that framework, right? Who say, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. no, I'm not going to take this most extreme model of risk prevention. You know, even when I can see that it's insane and nonsensical, you know, I'm going to stand up for myself and my own values. There's a real price that women pay, you know, for doing that. So, um, whereas the women who, who follow everything to the T, even when it makes them literally insane, you know, those are the women who are sort of held up as the quote unquote good mothers, right? So it's very hard to break out of that paradigm, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see how that would be. And so in all of your research that you did in preparing to write this book, would you say that you saw evidence of postpartum anxiety existing, you know, hundreds of years ago, or is it a new phenomenon or is it just more noticeable now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think that probably this has always existed for mothers to some extent, but I do think that we are living in a particular moment in the U.S., um, where this has become the culture of motherhood, has become a culture of anxiety, right? And so um, there's a reason that when we talk about illness in the context of pregnancy and postpartum, that we almost always or only talk about depression because anxiety has been so normalized and it's almost been sort of lionized as like good parenting. And so there are all sorts of different historical factors that lead to that. And I think that are sort of seeing like a crescendo right now. So from the way that, you know, motherhood as an identity has been marginalized, um, you know, mm-hmm. especially in the U.S. where it's like you're either sort of a serious intellectual 
worker person or you're a mother, you keep those two things sort of separate. Um, you know, and so from that to, um, to all these cultural factors where now we sort of um, see all children as being this population that's extremely at risk and pregnancy is a time of extreme risk. Um, and so, and, and mothers mostly as like risk managers whose job is to just prevent anything bad from happening all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are some of the different factors that sort of come together to create what, you know, what I think is this epidemic at this point, um, that has sort of been silently brewing beneath the surface for a long time. Um, and, and that finally now I think we're starting to talk about more and my book is part of that, hopefully. Yes, I think it's definitely part of that. I'm so glad that you wrote it. I was reading through, as you mentioned, you um, spoke to seven different women. So you have these different accounts from different, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds and different, you know, different experiences. And I think it's so helpful, as you've already mentioned, to have an example of women talking about these experiences openly and honestly. I think there's a lot of shame that can start to breed underneath the surface. And it's kind of, you know, a vicious cycle because then that encourages people to stay even more quiet about what they're experiencing when really, if they don't speak up about it, then it's going to be difficult to get help. Right, right, exactly. And I think it's going to be difficult to even recognize what is happening. You know, I think for a lot of women, it's really hard to draw the line between what is quote unquote normal worry or good parenting and what is actually like really dysfunctional and debilitating um, behavior, you know, that's sort of endorsed, right? So, yeah. So I think, um, you know, one thing that's so affirming is talking to other women and having them say, oh my God, I did that too. Or I felt that too. And then both of you can say, yeah, that's crazy. You know, we shouldn't, we Mm. shouldn't have to do that. Or, you know, we need to find a way to stop that. So. Right. And I thought it was really interesting too in the book, you mentioned that, you know, sometimes there are women who don't quite emerge out of that initial state of that hypervigilance that, you know, might then turn into um, elevated anxiety. I'm curious about your thoughts as to what conditions might give rise to people that have a more difficult time emerging from that typical state of being very much focused and honed in on the newborn? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that um, it's really important to understand pregnancy as this period of real um, vulnerability for women. And I sort of make a point of distinguishing in the book, and, and I think this is really critical, that vulnerability doesn't mean that women should be infantilized, that they're going to fall apart, that there's some sort of hormonal mess, right? That they're not in control because I think that happens to a lot of women is that they end up getting treated like children, you know, when they become mothers. But um, mm-hmm. I think there needs to be a real understanding of the fact that there are significant changes taking place in the maternal brain and in the body during this time. And if women have any sort of predisposition to say anxiety or depression or a mood disorder, or if they have any past sexual trauma, which uh, tragically many women have, right? A history mm-hmm. of abortion, a history of miscarriage, all of those things um, can be triggers during this time. And, and the brain is highly sensitive to that. And I mean, I, I still am shocked that no one said to me at any time, pregnancy or, or you know, in, in my uh, few postpartum visits, there are so few of them, 
no one said, you know what, you might want to be on the lookout for these kinds of symptoms um, because this could be a sign of, of some sort of mood disorder and they're incredibly common. Um, so I think that, you know, there are all sorts of, of triggers in place from childhood or uh, from young adulthood for women. And especially, you know, one in three women in the US has, has some sort of anxiety disorder. So all of that creates a, a period of sort of heightened vulnerability during this time. And I think it's really important um, to make that part of the language around pregnancy and postpartum instead of this sort of notion of like, either you have this normal, totally great, happy, healthy pregnancy, or you get hit with some sort of crazy psychiatric disorder, and then you have to get it treated somewhere in silence and then come back to normal, right? In actuality, I think, you know, many women are on this spectrum and they're somewhere, you know, some may have this great, really smooth transition. Um, Many of many women also struggle, you know, to one degree or the other. And then you have women on the other end of the spectrum who really need, you know, really need serious professional help. Um, but it's uh, the way that we talk about it is is still so limited, you know. So um, mm. there are so many things that can that can create that um, that trigger during this time period. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. What are your thoughts on ways in which our communities can better come together to support pregnant and then postpartum women through these experiences? Yeah, I mean, wow, so many things to do there. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, first of all, there, there need to be a lot of changes in the sort of medical establishment and the care that we give to mothers and in the way in which we um, talk about the sort of normative expectations of pregnancy and postpartum. And right now we still have this extremely outmoded system where you might be given the EPDS, um, you know, this, this one test for postpartum depression, you might be given that, you know, if you're at a really progressive practice, you might be given that two or three times in pregnancy and postpartum, it still will not catch debilitating anxiety or OCD, right? Um, So those conditions are still largely not screened for. um, And I think that speaks to a a bigger issue in the medical community was, which is that, um, they're often reinforcing this anxiety, right? It's often reinforced by the prenatal visits and by the expectation that no risk at all, not even a 0.001% risk, not even a 0.01% risk, not a 1% risk is ever worth it. And that's an insane way of living and thinking. We don't operate like that in any domain of our lives ever. The second we walk out the door and get in our cars or go in for a medical procedure, you know, all of that involves risk, but we tend to live in this, in this bubble in pregnancy and postpartum, um, thinking that women can and should obtain zero risk. Um, so, so that's something that really needs to be much more pervasive in the medical domain is examining why a lot of the other truths and other domains of medicine are sort of tossed out the window during this time period. Um, and then I also think like community wide, there's so much more, I mean, there's so much room for improvement, you know, in, in sort of how new mothers are supported from um, paid leave to universal childcare and pre-K, right? Um, and then, you know, I think um, historically, um, white women and, and white feminists in particular, and, and I think with good intentions, have really um, tried to obtain for women sort of a foothold in this white male capitalist world instead of trying to make motherhood and work more functional for all women. And that's Mm -hmm. something 
that really needs to change um, where women need white women in particular need to come together with women of color to find working conditions that are, um, you know, just for all women. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with you there. And I think in becoming a mother myself, I was made aware of so many of these um, dysfunctions, I guess, mm-hmm. of society, of the medical industry, of um, of work life. And it, it was really shocking to me how ignorant I was before I became a mom. You know, I knew mothers. I've known mothers all my life, of course. Um, and just to not hear anybody talk about these things in a way and then to suddenly be confronted with them myself, it it made me feel um, daunted. You know, it's like, how how can we actually go about making all of these changes that would really help to better serve women and mothers in general? Um, so I'm, I'm also curious too about the small ways in which you are helping to cultivate these honest conversations just in your daily life. What does that look like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think that one thing that I've seen that's been really powerful is just, um, you know, checking in with friends um, and just saying, you know, how are you doing really? And, and, uh, and, you know, giving some space. Um, It doesn't, you know, for, for things not to be okay. And that doesn't have to be like this big dramatic sort of like revelation of like, oh my God, what's happening with you? But just like holding space for that. And I realized how powerful that was for me when I was going through some difficult times when a friend would just call me up and just sort of um, sit there with me with that. And, and that was really powerful. Mm-hmm. And I and I always um, now, and I mean, I like may look crazy to people doing this, but I always do it. Whenever anyone um, tells me they're pregnant, I mean, not not like a stranger on the street, right? But like you know, friends and acquaintances who who know you well enough to write you an email and say, "I'm really excited, pregnant." I always say, um, you know, if you're freaking out or if you're alone at four o'clock in the morning and you don't know what to do, um, like give me a call anytime. And I really mean that because I think a lot of women, um, you know get sort of lost in this space and don't have anywhere to turn and um and and family can be sort of all wrapped up in that drama. And so mm-hmm. you know, I'm I've no one's ever called me so far at four o'clock in the morning. You know, I've had definitely heart to hearts with friends and whatnot. Um but I think that also just opens up a little crack of space to say it, you might freak out and it's okay if you do, and you can reach out to somebody, you know, and, and mm-hmm. maybe probably that person's not me, but at least there's a space there for that, you know. I really like that. Yeah, it's giving them an example and, and kind of just creating some context around it. Because you mentioned before, like the absence of information can make it seem like you shouldn't be experiencing anything. And so right. you just mentioning that like, hey, if, you, if you're ever feeling this way, um, it, it creates space in the mind for a woman to be like, oh, okay, so I might feel that way and it's okay and I have someone I can turn to. I, re- I really like that model. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, there are a lot of ways to make space for that. Um, sort of operating not under the assumption that like, oh, you must be so happy or this is the greatest mm. time. Or, and I and I find myself now, like when I am responding to emails from friends who, you know, say, oh, I'm so excited. I'm about to have the baby or something. 
I have the impulse to say like, enjoy those, you know, six weeks off because they go so fast or something like that. Right. Um, And there's a part of me that is like, oh, I do want to say that because, you know, I am nostalgic a little bit for that time. But I feel like I also don't want to impose that expectation on a woman. You know, I Mm. I want to, because I feel like that can be a pressure for someone to like, oh my God, I have to be enjoying this time. This has to be this incredible bonding time with my baby. So I try and say something else like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm really happy for you. Feel free to call at any time, like wish you all the best. And you know, um, and, uh, and, and instead of trying to put this pressure on them to feel a certain way or to live it a certain way. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Cause I I've definitely been on the receiving end of comments where it's like, Oh, you must just love everything. Oh, he's so cute. Like you must just love being around him all the time, every single day, you know, just yeah. things that to me sound ridiculous. It's like, well, of course that couldn't always be true, but people, assert it to me as if it as if it is the case you know and then it there's this um this voice in my head that will start to creep in like oh well should i be love- loving this at every single moment of every single day like is there something wrong with me because i i get frustrated sometimes sometimes i need a break you know all of those thoughts start to come up um right, just in right. response to someone kind of assuming that things must be a certain way Right. Yeah. And I, and I think one of the really interesting things I found researching the book was that, um, we really, as a culture, we have pathologized maternal ambivalence, right? And Hmm. the actual definition of maternal ambivalence is not what you would think like, Oh, I feel ambivalent. I feel so, so it's actually, um, like the combination of love and hate, right? Loving your child and hating your child. And, Hmm. um, you know, it's so taboo to talk about something like hating your own child, right? And I'm not talking about Mm -hmm. this like a day in, day out behavior or phenomenon, but to experience some hate for your child is actually quite normal, right? And, you know, a number of these psychologists have, have talked about this and it's a natural part of motherhood and it's not something you can act on, right? Um, But it's something that you have to be able to absorb and recognize and deal with. And this other side of motherhood that is really dark and difficult, um, that isn't just loving your child all the time and is sometimes really struggling with your child. When we try and deny that and repress that, that actually creates this really pathological culture of motherhood of trying to just be, um, you know, perfect and hyper loving all the time. And that's not to say, go ahead and yell at your kids and do whatever you want. But, um, but being able to recognize that like we're not automatons and we're not our children's therapists, you know, we're mm. people and, you know, and, and that's okay. Um, and accepting that. And I think that's another part of this sort of crazy culture of motherhood that we have now where there is this notion that you almost do sort of need to be your child's therapist, that like you need to be mm-hmm. processing all of their emotions and feelings and like framing them perfectly for them. And while it might be nice to think about that in terms of like, okay, you know, how can I manage difficult emotions without blowing up myself? Like that can be useful. But I think a lot of the times it becomes the sense that you should not have any emotions yourself and should be like this vessel in the way that a therapist is. And, and, and that's Mm -hmm. this um, extremely strange and difficult relationship to maintain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for shedding light on the terminology. I've never heard of maternal ambivalence before, and I didn't know what it meant. So I'm sure the listeners will be glad to to just have some insight on that. And and also going back to what we've said a couple of times before, just to know that they're not alone if they happen to be experiencing maternal ambivalence. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very common sort of natural phenomenon, right? And it's fascinating that we um, know so little about it, that we have this sort of expectation that when you become a mother, like some sort of trigger is um, flipped. And then all of a sudden, you're just like, even keel and happy and calm all the time, you know, all the time. Um, Yeah. Yeah, not really like that in real life. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Especially now, right? No. Especially now. Yes. So I'm curious too, we haven't delved into what I'm about to say just yet, but I've talked to a lot of people who have experienced postpartum anxiety, and I think it's really important for them to share their stories and, and how they have manifested the symptoms and how they've been able to emerge from it. But I'm also curious too about how it affected your your marriage was your was your husband aware of what you were going through? How was he able to to help support you through that time? Yeah, I mean, it definitely affected my marriage um, because I think in my case there was such this radical shift from being someone who was a real risk taker and a traveler and like went all over the mountains of Mexico with him sleeping on, you know, on the ground with no sleeping bag or anything, right? And and like eating in tiny little villages mm. in the middle of nowhere, um, to being someone who was really terrified to do almost anything. Um, so I think that was obviously really frustrating for him. And I think one of the paradoxes of this experience is that um, you know, partners can actually end up really reinforcing the anxiety in the problem because they're trying to be supportive and helpful. So, I mean, I'm mm. extremely lucky that I have a really supportive partner and that he was trying to make me feel better. But a lot of the things that he was doing to try and make me feel better just sort of reinforced this phenomenon, right? And that was also true for several other women in the book where their husbands would be like, okay, you want to sleep on the couch because you're scared you're going to wake up and strangle the baby. So go ahead and sleep on the couch. Okay, you want to sleep in the basement now. Well, go ahead. Let me help you move the bed to the basement, right? And so the partner mm-hmm. is trying to be accommodating um, and knowing that like, okay, this is strange and this is kind of frustrating, but like, I'm going to try and make her feel better. Um, and, and so one of the paradoxes of anxiety is that you really need people who are going to say to you, no, you can't do that. Like you can't close the window. You need to leave it open, even though you're freaking mm-hmm. out and you have to sit there with that. And that's really hard for a partner to do because you don't want to see your your loved one suffer. Um, but otherwise you can kind of end up, uh, you know, reinforcing that pattern. So that, that's what happened with us. Um, and then I, you know, luckily I found some help and, and the therapist pointed that out. And so we tried to sort of like break that cycle. Um, and yeah. I think it's still hard for him, you know, um, because, but, but also I think it's just hard for, any relationship after the birth of a child, right? And, and that mm-hmm. it completely changes the dynamic of the marriage. Um, and in this case, that, you know, the anxiety made it sort of extra difficult. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think it's important too to acknowledge, of course, the birthing person is going to experience their own identity shift. But if you're in a partnership, that dynamic can change too. And so just being aware of that, I think is helpful. And then also hearing how other people have navigated that experience before them, um, I think sheds a lot of light for for the listeners and for people in general. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I'm curious too, in writing this book, how are you able to juggle the process of writing, of researching, of interviewing all of these people with also your marriage and the mothering of your daughter? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, so my daughter, by the time I started writing the book, she had started um, a full day preschool program. So she was in school from eight to three. And that was life changing. (laughs) I mean, on so many levels, because I think one of the real strains on our marriage was that we were juggling childcare between the two of us because Mm -hmm. we're both freelancers. He's a photographer. I'm a writer. And so, um, you know, we were trying to do this thing where it's like, you watch her in the morning and I watch her in the afternoon. Um, and we were sort of constantly getting into these really tense arguments about time and whose time mm-hmm. was worth more literally and who's, you know, and, and, uh, and who had said they were going to spend time and didn't spend the full time. And it was uh, really intense. And once she was in school, it was just like, oh, all of that lifted. It was, we had, we both had this set framework of time. And if somebody else needed two hours at the end of the day, it wasn't that big of a deal. Right. But she was in school from eight to three. So that was huge. Um, and, uh, so that gave me like a full work day more, you know, or, or at least, you know, a little bit more than half a work day. So I just worked like crazy during that time. And then I, I will say that like psychologically it was much harder than I thought it would be to manage like the the mental work of writing a book and having a child because a book is just requires such a singular intensive focus all the time mm-hmm. you got to be super on and in that space and in that flow and obviously parenting is kind of the opposite of just like ah you know being all over the place and sort of yes. like scattered and freewheeling um, and so it was very uh, strange and disconcerting to sort of like toggle back and forth between those two modes. Um, so I experienced for the first time that sort of mom guilt of like, oh my God, I'm not fully present with my work and I'm not fully present with my daughter. And I'm sort of like feeling. Mm-hmm. Yes. So how did it end up being? So you you mentioned in the um in the beginning of our chat that this book launched in April of 2020, which yeah. um, was a very unique moment in time. And not usually I'm I'm sure the like the order of events for what a book launch typically looks like did not necessarily follow suit with your experience this time around. So can you share a little bit more about what that looked like and how that's impacted your book coming out into the world? Yeah. So, um, you know, that was really difficult. Like I remember my editor and I had a conversation last year. I went to New York and visited the team at Pantheon and we talked about the launch and all of that. And, uh, you know, we sort of joked like, oh, I, you know, hope the president doesn't do anything crazy in April, right? And then fast forward to April, 2020, and the whole country is uh, basically on lockdown, right? And at the time, you know, I was so like, like most people I knew, I was so sort of overwhelmed by what was happening that like the book almost seemed secondary. Like I, you know, I was thrilled to see the book come out. I was thrilled to get the hardcover, um, but I was also a little bit terrified about the state of the world. So um, my whole, I was supposed to go on a tour on the East Coast and the West Coast, which would have been my first tour, which was really exciting. And that was all canceled. Um, I think at the time I was sort of so absorbed with what was happening that the impact didn't really hit me. Now I am much more like, oh, wow, absorbing the impact of what happened in those few months. Because just now I think publishers are starting to see that like, um, you know, they had to shut down all of their distributors, all of their centers, bookstores, almost everywhere were closed. Amazon wasn't shipping books uh, for a a little over a month. So 
everything mm-hmm. just came to a, like a screeching halt right when the book came out. In, in spite of that, um, you know, I, I've had a lot of virtual events that have been really nice at like bookstores and libraries around the country. And I've heard from a lot of women who've read the book and said it's the first time they've ever read anything like this. So that's been really great. Um, you know, so I'm trying to focus on that instead of sort of the disappointment of, of having a book come out at this crazy moment and like the missed opportunities there. Um, but I do think for better or worse, it's a book that will have a long shelf life in that there is so little written about motherhood. And like you were saying, it's amazing yeah. how much we don't know when we become mothers about an experience that's so universal and so fundamental. Um, so I hope my book is part of this growing sort of canon of literature about motherhood that women can turn to um, when they become mothers and that will make motherhood sort of less invisible in general in our society. Oh, I think you've already accomplished that. I, I literally, I read the first page and immediately I had, I've highlighted in my Kindle um, most of the first paragraph, but it was because I just felt so seen by your words. I was like, wow, yes, finally someone is capturing what I have experienced and what I've noticed (laughs) about motherhood in general. And here it is right before my eyes on this Kindle screen. Like this, there's something so magical about reading when you can connect with someone who you've never met before, but you have the unshakable feeling that they're in solidarity with you. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I I definitely had that experience with your book. Oh, thank you. That that is the highest compliment. I appreciate that. You're welcome. So as we start to come full circle, how can people stay in touch with your work and how can people continue to support all of the work that you do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So (laughs) definitely, um, you know, buy the book from your local bookstore. Um, Many local bookstores are really suffering right now as well. So so they could use your support. So pick up a copy of Ordinary Insanity there or, um, you know, from bookshop.org is a great alternative to Amazon for buying books Mm. now. So that is a great way to show your support for the book. And then um, if you want to keep up with me and what I'm working on, I have a newsletter, a weekly newsletter. You can sign up on my website, which is www.sarahmankydick.com. And um, then you can also follow me on Instagram where I'm Familia Santiago because of my uh, husband and daughter and our time in between Mexico and the U.S. So those are all ways to show some support and keep in touch. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sarah. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yay. And that's it for this episode of Young Honest Mother, the podcast, which means it's time for you to join the conversation. Share your thoughts on social media and tag me at Young Honest Mother, and then pass this episode along to friends and family who need to know that they're not alone on this journey either. Until next time, I'm your host, Maurice Young. <laughs>